Welcome to Nutrition Assessment. In this episode, we have the audio-only portion of class from today, Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. And in class today, we started a discussion around the current evidence and best practice for nutrition assessment with transgender patients. Okay, so today we're talking about transgender assessment today. So um, I will get this posted. It's not there yet. I will get this posted on the page for today's class. It was not, I don't think, previously on the syllabus. Um, So the title is Caring for Transgender Patients and Clients, Nutrition-Related Clinical and Psychosocial Considerations. It's relatively short, and it's a very good read. So heads up that that's coming, or you can click that link and go to it. Looking ahead, there are some questions about things coming up on the calendar. So I mentioned, for those of you who had lab yesterday, that we're going to start looking at malnutrition next week, and that is true. And then we're going to do nutrition-focused physical exam the week after that, because somehow next week is November, and the week after that is the second week of November. I can't wrap my head around that. So when we go to the Clinical Skills Center to do the standardized patients for nutrition-focused physical exam, previously in the semester, my understanding was if you were not vaccinated, you could not participate. And as of now, if you are vaccinated or not, you can participate. We're all going to have to wear PPE, right, like we always do. But everyone can participate in the standardized patients for NFPE that particular week. Also in November... Um, There is no class and no lab the day before Thanksgiving, Wednesday the 24th. And if I can't do lab on a Wednesday, then there's no reason to do lab on a Tuesday. So there's also no lab on that Tuesday. So if you're making plans around travel or Thanksgiving or what have you, um, just want to draw your attention to the fact that there is no lab on that Tuesday. Let's all take a breath. Speaking of pausing to take a breath, did you know? Did you know that HRS cares? So HRS is the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, and CARES is a series of initiatives and resources that we are actively putting together to support students, faculty, and staff as we navigate, I love this, the ongoing challenges of the past year. Like, first of all, it's been a year and a half. Also, it's not over yet. So just basically some resources put together around mental health and wellness and just supporting each other. So tomorrow, 1028 from 9 to 11 a.m. in the lobby of Atwell Hall. There will be um, Buckeye Paws therapy dogs, free food, opportunity to learn more about this program, or you can go to the website. Um, so I can't imagine you knew about that because it just existed as of like yesterday. We hit publish on the on the HRS Cares website. Um, but another chance to come see therapy dogs. They're in the lobby. Come see, come see. All right. So today's topic is transgender assessment. So before we begin, I do need to point out that I am not an expert on this topic. There are topics in this class that I am expert in. I am expert in diet analysis. I'm expert in body composition. I've worked in those fields. I really am an expert. When it comes to transgender assessment, I am at the very, very most a novice. So I am approaching this topic with as much humility and as much curiosity as I can bring. And um, when it comes to teaching, there's a couple of phrases, um, sage on the stage versus guide on the side. So despite the physical setup of this classroom that makes it look like I am the wise person on the stage 
spewing my brilliance at you and you just absorb it, right? I am not, and on, on any topic, but definitely not this one, I am not a sage on the stage. What I can do, since I'm not an expert, I can guide you and say, here, pay attention to this. These things are important. This is what we need to be thinking about as dietetics professionals for this population. So <clears throat> I, am your, I am your guide on the side, despite the fact that it looks like I am, I'm literally behind a podium on a stage in this classroom. I kind of hate this classroom, not going to lie. Do you guys like this classroom? Eh. If we could schedule this class in a different room next year, would you? Like one with power outlets? I mean, as a for instance. My laptop makes about five seconds without the power cord, so. So key takeaways for today. We're going to get to it pretty quick. We're going to start with explaining what we're talking about with transgender, what that means. Um, get everybody up to on the same page on that. Um, and then we're going to get into the fact that there, there just aren't good recommendations for what we should do for nutrition assessment. So what I really want you to remember from today is that you're always going to respectfully ask patients or clients questions, and you're going to honor their responses. So what they prefer to be called or the name that they have chosen for themselves, those are the things that you will use. It depends is one of my favorite phrases in all parts of nutrition assessment, and it still applies here. As we get into transgender, what it means to have a gender identity and a gender expression, that's going to vary. There's not one way to be transgender. So what that might mean in terms of someone, someone's health depends, right? So it depends is the, is the thing there. And then as I've been working on putting these slides together and putting this presentation together for you all, there's been a lot of light bulb moments for me where I'm sort of unlearning something that I thought I knew and relearning something new. And so I just want to point out that I'm learning along with you. And sometimes learning means unlearning. It means getting a better understanding and forgetting what you thought you knew before. So to start off, <clears throat> there's, there's, this, there's this really, really big concept that we have to make clear. And sure enough, I found a webcomic that explains it better than I can. So gender, the idea of male or female, gender is a social construct. And this webcomic pretty much nails it. We have a person telling two other people, you need to hide your genitals, but only wear clothing that represents those genitals. Whenever people see your clothes, they should really be thinking about your genitals. And then the two people say, oh no, right? So this is true. Gender is a social construct over millennia, right? We have constructed our own understanding of what it means to be male versus what it means to be female. And there have historically been very strong expectations around what people will do with those, right? That they will conform to those expectations. But gender is not a binary. It's not one or the other. And gender is separate from sexual attraction. So this graphic, which is from um, the Trans Student Educational Resources website, I've seen this actually in various trainings that I've attended, um, and it's, it's pretty helpful. This graphic is going through and explaining what we mean by gender identity versus gender expression, which are both separate from sex assigned at birth, and also distinctly separate from physical attraction and emotional attraction. So to go down the list, gender identity is a person's internal sense of being male or female 
or neither of these, or both, or another gender, gender non-conforming. Everybody has a gender identity, and for people who are transgender, their sex assigned at birth and their own internal sense of gender are not the same. So when we say trans, trans means that like opposite or invert, think trans fatty acids, right? Where the, hydro, the, double, the double bond is on the opposite side of the, of the chain for the fatty acid, it means opposite, right? Or instead, you could have cis, right? So cisgender means that the person identifies with the gender they were, or with the sex they were assigned at birth. So that's gender identity. That is who in your, in your head, what you represent, or you know, what, what you think of yourself as. Gender expression or gender presentation is the physical manifestation of your gender identity, which we display through clothing, hairstyle, um, the way we use our voice, the body shape. Many transgender people may seek to make their gender expression or how they look match how they feel. And the ways they may choose to do that vary tremendously, right? So in terms of health or nutrition implications, we'll get to this, you cannot assume what a person's nutritional needs are going to be based solely on their gender expression as you see it when they walk in the room, right? You're gonna need more information than that. Sex assigned at birth is the assignment or classification of people as male, female, or intersex, or another sex, based on looking at anatomy or chromosomes. So historically, you can think of before we had um, ultrasounds or genetic testing, you didn't know what the baby's gender was until they were born, and then you saw either a penis or a vagina, and you said, this is a male or this is a female, right? You're assigning a sex at birth. We can now do genetic testing looking at chromosomes, right? And we traditionally assign double X, XX chromosome, and an X, X, double X, XX as um, female and XY as male. But those are not the only possibilities. A person could have more than, more than two X chromosomes. They could have more than two X chromosomes and a Y chromosome. And they could have more than two Y chromosomes. So gender and sex, are, neither one is as clear cut as we have traditionally thought of it perhaps to be. And chromosomes do not always determine genitalia or sex. And chromosomes certainly do not determine a person's gender identity, right? So because they have a certain set of genes does not mean that they will have that gender identity. I mentioned the word intersex. Intersex is an umbrella term for differences in sex traits or reproductive anatomy. So intersex people are born with differences or they can develop them in childhood. And there's many possible differences in terms of genitalia, hormones, internal anatomy, or chromosomes compared to what we may think of as the typical ways that a body can develop as male or female, right? So intersex is a possibility as well. Some intersex traits are noticed at birth. Others don't show up until puberty or later in life. Um, and here is one where um, to date, really very, very recently, um, intersex infants would the parents of intersex infants would have been offered surgeries at birth to correct, and I say that with air quotes, correct what was perceived as atypical or abnormal external genitalia. 
Um, and that is very much falling out of favor that you would decide for a child at birth that they're going to be male and we will change the physical characteristics of their body to match that or they're going to be female and we will change the physical characteristics of their body to match that. That is something a person has the right to decide and definitely not when they're an infant and have no ability to consent, much less speak. Go with that. So sex assigned at birth, assigning sex at birth is very much something we still do, right? We do assign sex at birth. But it may or may not have any correlation to someone's gender identity. And it could be more complex than just male or female. Physically attracted to, so physically attracted to is sexual orientation, which has absolutely nothing to do with someone's gender identity. These are two entirely separate things. So it's important to note that this can vary, right? As you know, we have the LGBTQIA plus and whatever else, right? There's options. Um, and there's a variety of factors that are involved here in terms of sexual attraction. I'm really not an expert. I'm trying to remember the training I went to. But there are, I mean, you could be heterosexual, you could be homosexual, you could be pansexual, you can be bisexual. Like, it's not like one or the other here either, right? It's not binary. There are options. And then emotionally attracted to would be romantic or emotional orientation, which again could be separate from physical attraction. So there's, there's lots of things that go into who you are as a person, how you present to the world, and what that means in terms of the interactions you have with others. For myself, I love that they did this. For this project, they included a coloring book page version of the gender unicorn. So I included that in case you'd like to color in the coloring book page on notability or others. So for myself, um, I was assigned the um, female sex at birth. I do identify as female, so I am a cisgender female. I believe I present as female. I have long hair and earrings, and I wear jewelry, and you know, I'm going to a wedding this weekend, and the invitation says tuxes and gowns, which, okay. But I will feel more comfortable in a gown than I would in a tux, so I'm going to wear a dress, right? So that will present as female. Sexually attracted to, emotionally attracted to, I, that would be men for me. So that would mean that I am a heterosexual cisgender female. Short version means if I walk in the door and you've never met me before, I fit all of the things you might assume about me, right? I look like a woman, I am, I identify as a woman, I was assigned female at birth, and I am attracted to my husband of 11 years. He's fabulous. He gets to keep the kids at home this weekend while I go to the wedding. This is going to be fun, right? There might be adult beverages involved. Possibly. All right, some more terminology. It's, just, it's really important that we get these terms straight. All of these definitions come from the American Psychological Association, a publication in 2015, which I believe is recent enough that they've got the terms correct. I've got one coming up where I noticed the term is incorrect because it's from way back in the day in 2012. So transgender is an adjective that is an umbrella term to describe the full range of people whose gender identity and or gender role do not conform to what is typically associated with their sex assigned at birth. So although the term transgender is common, not all transgender and gender non-conforming people identify as transgender. People get to choose what they identify as. And transgender includes both male to female and female to male 
though each of those is going to have distinct health and nutrition implications. So cisgender would be myself, right? An adjective used to describe a person whose gender identity and gender expression align with sex at birth, person who is not transgender and not gender nonconforming. Male to female are individuals who at birth were assigned the male sex and who have changed, are changing, or wish to change their body and or gender role. Notice the and or. You don't have to change your body to be transgender, okay? So and or gender role to a more feminized body or gender role. Male to female persons are, often, are also often referred to as transgender women, trans women, or trans space women. Female to male are individuals assigned female sex at birth who have changed, are changing, or wish to change their body and or gender identity to a more masculine body or gender identity. Again, you don't have to make any changes to the body to be transgender. Female to male persons are also often referred to as transgender men, trans men, or trans space men. Gender nonconforming is an adjective used as an umbrella term to describe people whose gender expression or gender identity differs from gender norms associated with their assigned birth sex. So gender nonconforming could be a person who would prefer to wear a tux, right? A person assigned female at birth, right? Who would prefer to wear a tux to this wedding I'm going to this weekend, right? It would just be you, you, you express your gender in a way that does not conform to the social construct that we have around male versus female. Gender queer is a term used to describe a person whose gender identity does not align with a binary understanding of gender. So a person who does not fully identify as male or fully identify as female. I believe the term non-binary would also apply here. But that's not what the APA said, so maybe not. Again, I'm learning too. With all of this, another important term to get at is hormone therapy or gender-affirming hormone therapy or hormone replacement therapy which is the use of hormones to masculinize or feminize a person's body. Again, they can choose to make changes to the body, but there's no requirement that a person make changes to the body, to better align that person's physical characteristics with his or her gender identity. Hormone therapy may be an important part of medically necessary treatment to alleviate gender dysphoria. And we'll get to gender dysphoria in a minute. If you still have questions about gender identity and expression and the many, term, many forms it can take and the terms that are used and terms to avoid, this is from the LGBT Health and Development Program at Northwestern University. And it's actually a Prezi presentation, one of those things you can click through and it zooms in and zooms out and gives you like seasickness from all the movement, right? Um, but it does go through and breaks out gender identity and expression from masculinity to femininity to both to neither and anywhere in between. So this is the, that is a link up there, the gender map, to the actual gender map if you'd like to click through that. With all of this, nutrition assessment for transgender people. So current estimates are that 0.6% of adults in the United States identify as transgender. However, that number, that 0.6% has doubled in the last 10 years. 
So do we have accurate numbers of how many people identify as transgender? Or are there perhaps a great many people who are as yet not comfortable with letting the world know that they have a, a gender identity that does not match the sex they were assigned at birth? Also, 0.6% of adults in the United States still represents 1.4 million people. That's a lot of people. Um, but we'll get to in a second. No guidelines exist regarding nutrition assessment for transgender or gender non-conforming patients. None. But 1.4 million people is a lot of people. And as I looked at this, what it, so I am, I am cisgender, heterosexual, I can walk into a room, people, they, you know, you, what you see is what you get, kind of, you know, people, ex, people, what they expect is what they find with me. But I do have a disability, right? Totally different category. I do have a disability. And it's considered a rare diagnosis. And again, rare is in air quotes. The term rare, I think, can be a little offensive. Because something is rare because it does happen, not because it's non-existent, right? So there aren't good guidelines for care for nutrition for EDS, for example, although there's a webinar coming up from the Academy next week, so I'll see if I can watch that. So we don't have perhaps as high a prevalence of this as, say, diabetes, right, where we have a huge prevalence of diabetes in the United States, but that doesn't make it okay that we don't know what to do for these patients, right? So there is some work that is starting. So Linson Meyer is a name that's going to come up over and over again as we go through the slides. Linson Meyer is also one of the authors on the publication I'd like you to read for today. And so this publication is Towards Gender Affirming Nutrition Assessment, a case series of adult transgender men with distinct nutrition considerations, published just last year. And um, the rather damning line from this article is, no guidelines exist regarding nutrition assessment for transgender or gender non-conforming patients. So I can't teach you how to do transgender assessment because there's nothing to teach you. There's no guidelines I can tell you this is what we do for this patient population. <laughs> there's nothing. So what are we going to do for the next half hour? Well, we'll get to that. I did also look, yes, Young. Okay. By all means, please do. She also has an Audible podcast that I wasn't able to download, so good to know that those resources do exist. I went and found all of her publications, all her peer-reviewed publications, right? Because that's, that's my training, is to go look for the evidence base. She's got about four, right, which is a good start, and this is something she's actively working on. I would love to sit down and chat with her. Maybe reading through her Google site will be as close as I can get to sitting down and chatting with her. Because clearly this is the person who's leading this effort, right? So no guidelines exist. And then I have a line here. There is even less, less information, fewer guidelines, even less to work from for intersex people. If there are no guidelines for transgender, how can there be even less for intersex? Well, because there are some efforts underway to create guidelines for transgender people. For example, I'm, I'm hearing as of right now that Linson Meyer does have things on her own website, right? There is nothing for intersex individuals. I mean, correct me, if, if you can find it, please let me know. I'm learning along with you, but I tried. I could find nothing on nutrition recommendations for intersex individuals. Part of the difficulty there is that an intersex individual may not know that they are intersex. 
You could be intersex and not know it, because if you develop one way or the other and that aligns with your gender identity and it presented no health issues, you would not know that you were intersex. Or if you had a procedure done as an infant and no one told you that happened, you may not know that you are intersex. So there's, you know, I don't even know where to begin on that one because it's not something that's reported, there's no statistics, and there, it's not currently, no one's even started that I can find on researching that one. But transgender assessment, at least, within the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, um, <clears throat> transgender nutrition assessment is an initiative. It's, there's the Transgender Nutrition Project. They're looking, starting to look at this, and Linson Meyer is, again, one of the lead, leads on this and also one of the authors, authors of this publication. So they did a scoping review of the existing literature, which is pretty sparse. If you have fewer than 200 articles on a topic, that's pretty sparse literature. The conclusion they came to, transgender individuals have unique nutrition needs, which may vary according to the stage of social and medical transition. While the potential nutrition-related health outcomes of hormone therapy and the prevalence of nutrition-related health outcomes compared to the cisgender population have been reported throughout the literature, there is still a lack of research examining effective methods of implementing nutrition therapy for nutrition professionals working with transgender individuals. We need more data, right? That's what we're getting at here. We need more information. We need more research, and we need to do better. So. No guidelines exist, we need to do better, what can we do? So as I went through all of the publications I could find, and I look forward to learning more after class, what I came across were there, if, I can't, if there are no assessment guidelines in existence, then what are the health issues that this population faces, right? Because a specific health issue can have specific medical nutrition therapies that we take, right? You're learning all of that in MNT. If this is your health issue, this is what we do from a nutrition standpoint. So what are some of the health issues faced by the transgender community? And then what might those health issues lead to or need help with in terms of nutrition? That was, that was the position I took trying to put this together. So the first one that comes up, gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is defined as psychological distress that results from an incongruence between one's sex assigned at birth and one's gender identity. And I think it's worth stressing that this is severe distress. This is, um, I, again, I'm cisgender, so I can't appreciate what this would be like. But this is severe distress in terms of the way, who I perceive myself to be is not how anyone in the world is seeing me. I am perceived by others as different than I perceive myself. And this causes a myriad of mental health issues and other issues as well. Also worth noting that transgender people in general, if they may not have support, right? They may not have support from friends, from family member, from coworkers. That loss of support may lead to housing insecurity or food insecurity or violence or discrimination. And that discrimination can include lack of access to healthcare. So if you have a group that is at, um, greater risk of all of those things and a greater risk of lack of access to healthcare, I can't fix discrimination with nutrition, right? I can't, there's, would that I could. There's no nutrition prescription for eliminating discrimination. 
but I can learn to be more open and more accepting and more inviting to variety of population, and then we can work on the things that are within my scope of practice, right? So we'll start there. One of the things I can work on, <clears throat> this publication from 2012, rather, uses the term transsexual in the title of the publication. That term, it is my understanding, is out of date because transgender is not only the preferred term, it is the more accurate term, right? We're talking about gender identity, and we've already established gender is separate from sex. So transsexual is a word that we're not going to use, right? We don't use that one. With gender dysphoria, though, with this, this disconnect, basically, between the way you perceive your gender and the way others perceive your gender, one of the major implications of that is also body dysphoria. So having a disconnect with the way you perceive your body to be and the way you wish your body were or the way you want your body to be, which can lead to disordered eating or eating disorders. So the existing evidence points to a higher prevalence of disordered eating and eating disorders among transgender patients. So that disordered eating, that is something we can do, right? That's something we can address with nutrition and um, mental health counseling. So there's something, right? We don't really have guidelines for how to treat transgender patients, but maybe we should be on the lookout for eating disorders and disordered eating. If a person does chew to pursue medical treatment to make their body align with their gender identity, then there are options such as gender-affirming hormone therapy. So people wishing to feminize their bodies can receive anti-androgens or medications that work against androgens, work against testosterone, and or estrogen, and those will have a feminizing effect. People wishing to masculinize their bodies may choose to receive testosterone. So hormone therapy, hormone, gender-affirming hormone therapy or hormone replacement therapy or hormone therapy, could be called any of those things, is going to make a big difference in terms of um, what, what that body and how that body works, honestly. And it also depends how long someone has been on gender-affirming hormone therapy and at what point in their lives they started gender-affirming hormone therapy. So if the, if the person is young enough, if they're an adolescent or a, an older child and have not yet gone through puberty, you can prescribe with child and parent consent and doctors involved, obviously, medications called puberty blockers, right? So puberty, we've all been there. That's when these sex-specific hormones kick into high gear and we develop bodies that are perceived as female or perceived as male. And if a child identifies as transgender and is receiving supportive care, they may elect to have puberty blockers so that they do not develop those characteristics. For an adult who's already gone through puberty, hormone replacement therapy or gender-affirming hormone therapy could be referred to as a second puberty, basically going through that process again. So hormone therapy can take years. It's not an overnight process for someone to have, see physical changes in their body. But if you do have anti-androgen anti therapy, rather, so blocking testosterone, that would cause decreased muscle mass. It would cause fewer erections, change in sex drive, smaller testicles, and thinning of facial and body hair. 
So basically, it would, you know, things like decreased muscle mass. We assess muscle mass, right? So if, if a person has undergone or is undergoing anti-androgen therapy, we would expect a different body composition, perhaps, than what we would expect from sex assigned at birth. Estrogen therapy promotes physical changes that are more consistent with feminine appearance. So things like um, softer skin, more fat on the hips, buttocks, and face, full breasts, mood changes, anxiety, or depression. And then masculinizing hormones are going to do things like increase lean body mass, increase um, body hair and facial hair, um, and there's some changes in terms of um, lipid profile as well. So gender-affirming hormone therapy could make some pretty big differences in terms of what a person's nutritional needs are. Maybe. We don't really know yet. The research doesn't exist. But it does depend how long has this person been on therapy and at what age did they start therapy. Hormone replacement therapy, or HRT, is not without risks. And it is not without risks for cisgender individuals either. There are medical conditions where a cisgender person may elect to have hormone replacement therapy as well. So we know the risks of hormone replacement therapies. So for both estrogen supplementation and testosterone supplementation, you can see DVT or pulmonary embolism, so deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism or blood clots are a risk. High triglycerides or dyslipidemia are a risk. Weight gain is a risk, right? That's, you know, nutrition, kind of, a little bit there. Hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and from there the lists diverge. But there are a long list of health conditions that a person receiving hormone replacement therapy is at a higher risk of those conditions. Now, if a person is receiving hormone therapy, they and their healthcare provider have made the decision that the, ther the benefits of therapy outweigh these risks, right? but there may still need to be treatment to address some of these side effects. So weight gain, for example. Some percentage of weight gain is influenced by the hormones that we have, the sex hormones that we have in our body, but it's a lot more complex than that, right? So the amount of weight that a person gains is not solely tied to starting um, hormones. And it may be for a person who is transitioning from one perceived body type to another, they may desire a larger body size. They may want to put on weight because that would be perceived as more in alignment with what they perceive that gender to be. On the flip side, you may have someone who, um, again, with disordered eating or eating disorders, they may restrict their eating to try to um, change their body type in that way. So when we say we have nutrition concerns for transgender patients, I mean I'm concerned that someone could be anorexic and I'm concerned that someone could be vastly over-consuming calories and everything in between, right? There's not one thing I'm gonna be worried about if I encounter someone who is um, needing health and nutrition care for a, a, a tr medical transition or just living life as a transgender individual. So there's a lot, but if you look at this list, you can see hypertension, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, stroke. All of these things are things that we know we can influence with better nutrition, right? So these are, these are places where we as dietitians could be involved to help patients have a better health outcome. So gender dysphoria is that sense that your gender identity does not align with how the world perceives you and a person may 
choose to alter their um, gender expression either through clothing or their body. They can make alterations to the body. So hormone replacement therapy is one way to make alterations to the body. Another way to do that is through gender-affirming surgeries. Now, here's where I need to point out that if you meet a transgender individual and you learn their pronouns and you learn a little bit about them, you do not ask what genitals they have. That's not a question. That's not a thing, right? The first day of class, you're not like, hey, Professor Rosnack, do you have a vagina? You would never ask a cisgender person that. Why would you ask a trans? It's none of your business, right? That said, if you were involved in their care following a surgery, it would be important to know about that because the different types of surgeries that are, that are used for gender-affirming surgery have different types of recovery times and different types of needs. So every single one of these surgeries listed here is a hyperlink to more information because I only have so many hours in the day and only so many minutes in this class. But for gender-affirming surgeries, for female to male, there is facial masculinization, which could involve rhinoplasty or working on the nose. It could involve craniofacial, like changing the bone structure of the face. You can imagine what the recovery time might be for that. We talked about thick and lickens and swallowing difficulties yesterday. If someone has had facial surgery, that may change what they're able to eat, right? What they're able to swallow. Female to male top surgery is a mastectomy with additional work involved to make the chest appear male. Hysterectomy is removal of the uterus. Oophorectomy is removal of the ovaries. Metoidplasty. Metoidplasty is taking genital tissue and using it to create a small penis, whereas phalloplasty is a procedure that creates a regular-sized penis using flaps of skin from other areas of the body. So depending on which type of surgery, recovery time is going to be different. For male to female, there's facial feminization, which again can involve working on the nose or other aspects of the face. Male to female top surgery is typically breast augmentation in that case. Orchiectomy is removal of the testicles. Vaginoplasty is the creation of a, um, vaginoplasty is a procedure involves removing the penis, testicles, and scrotum, and surgeons use the remaining tissue to create a functioning vagina. And then voice feminization surgery is surgeons alter the vocal cords, right? So as I bring these up, orchiectomy is typically an outpatient procedure, and you'd go home the same day. It's not terribly invasive, and you could recover within a few days on your own at home. Vaginoplasty is very invasive, very involved, and will require a much longer hospital stay and a much longer recovery time. So it's none your business what genitals a person does or does not have, but if you were involved in their care following these types of surgeries and it's part of their medical record, then, then yes, then you can know what these things are. Um, let's see, what else did I say on that? I think that's it. But general guidelines in terms of following surgery are always going to be adequate calories, adequate fluid, adequate protein. Um, but the invasiveness of the surgery or the, the severity of the, the wound, basically, that you're creating is going to change, perhaps, your metabolic needs and your protein needs. So potential approaches to assessment. What the heck do we do? 
So all of this, again, is from that Linsenmeyer publication. This is the one I would like you, no, that's, I'm sorry, the one I want, read them all, I'll just say that. This is one I've referenced earlier in the presentation, though. Um, this is where they did a case study, case series, rather, of 10 adult transgender men, and they tried to find what were the themes, what were the things that needed to be addressed in this particular patient group, and what they came up with for potential approaches to assessment. We, to date in this class, have done, there's the value for males, and there's the value for females. It's incredibly binary, nutrition assessment. We have one, and we have the other. So one approach is to use the reference values that are consistent with the patient's gender identity. And you can use those reference values consistent with the patient's gender identity regardless of how they choose to express their gender. So if they've chosen to express their gender through only, say, hair and makeup and clothing, you could still use that value. On the other hand, you could individualize the assessment to align with the patient's medical transition. And this particular publication writes, clinicians may switch from the female values to the male values for body fat once a patient has been on masculinizing hormones for 12 months. That is the kind of specificity I'm looking for, right? How long would someone need to be on a hormone replacement therapy or gender-affirming hormone therapy before we would actually expect the differences to be, to be apparent? But this publication says nothing about feminizing hormones, right? We're getting there, but very slowly. So you could individualize assessment to align with the patient's medical transition. In both cases, you should individualize your assessment and reference values to align with the patient's preference. You could ask the patient how they would like to approach their care, right? Another option is to express data as a range between male and female. So we have for energy expenditure, for example, we have the equations for males, we have the equations for females. You could run the same equation both ways using the height and weight of the individual that you have, and then that generates a range of calories, and you could say, we think it should be somewhere within this range. There again, the most important thing, all of our predictive equations are just predicting or estimating calorie needs. The best thing you can do is follow up with that person and see if they're able to reach their goals. Whether those goals are weight gain or weight loss, are they able to do it in a way that is healthy for them? So those are some of the recommendations from this publication. So use reference values consistent with the patient's gender identity. Individual, individualized assessment to align with medical transition, although not every transgender person elects to do a medical transition. Or express data as a range between male and female values. So with all of this, my biggest takeaway is that we want to build rapport with all of our patients, right? Getting someone to trust you enough to tell you about what they actually ate yesterday is hard enough. Getting someone to trust you enough to tell you about their true gender identity is something else entirely. So when you are asking questions, it's important to make sure that you are asking those questions in a way that is respectful. So for example, you could ask what sex were assigned, what sex were you assigned at birth on your original birth certificate? The screenshot down here, this image in the corner, this is actually every year um, within, for university employees, you have to take a personal health assessment. And this year, 2021, was the first time that PHA started with this question. This was the first question. What sex were you assigned at birth on your original birth certificate? That was the first time that showed up. You can also ask someone, what are your preferred pronouns? 
If this feels awkward, you could, yes? Okay, because I've been, I've been reading and listening and finding everything I can. I've heard preferred pronouns used, I've heard chosen pronouns used, and you're saying it would be better to say, what are your pronouns? Okay, so you can avoid that minefield by just saying, my pronouns are she and hers. Would you like to tell me yours? Right, you can leave it at that. That's another way to do it. Also, by leading off with, hi, my name is Sarah, I'm a dietitian here on staff, my pronouns are she and hers, you've made it clear that you're interested in knowing if they have a different preference. I don't mean to say that, yes, I prefer that everyone be respected. But you've made it clear that you're open to that conversation. And the person can pursue that and tell you their chosen pronouns, or they cannot, right? Remember, 0.6% of the population identifies as transgender, which means there's probably a lot of people who are still living in a way that they prefer to keep that to themselves. So if they prefer to keep it to themselves, that is, again, their choice. So what are your pronouns, right? I'll update the slides. What are your pronouns? And then who are the important people in your life or who is family to you? Because if you make assumptions of like, are you married or, you know, who are your, who are your parents or who are your, you, if you assume a certain family set, right, that assumes a lot about someone's identity and their, um, sexual identity for that matter, but also it assumes the person has these types of supportive people in their life, right? And so there's this concept of chosen family. So for people whose, you know, birth family did not accept them, then they have a sense of chosen family, people they have chosen who do fully accept them. So you could ask questions like that. The publication that I would like you to read for today has an entire table of things you can do to make sure that you are creating a welcoming environment. So while we do not yet have good recommendations for how to assess a transgender patient from a nutrition perspective, we definitely have good recommendations for how to create that welcoming environment and how to make sure people know that you are invested in their care. Examples of care. Couple resources here at Ohio State. Um, the LGBTQ group at Ohio State has an entire page devoted to trans at Ohio State. And the Wexner Medical Center does have a transgender primary care clinic. Um, that is the link and that is the phone number to reach the transgender primary care clinic. If you think about this, because um, I, I have been thinking about this, as a cisgender woman, I, um, I go to my OBGYN's office for a pap smear every few years or every year, depending on what they tell me to do. Um, and when I go to that office, all the patients are female. The only bathroom on the floor is for women. And there's a sign on the door saying, only women can use this restroom. If you are male, please go somewhere else. And I believe they've done that to try and make all of their patients who identify as female more comfortable. But what if I were a trans man and I did not medically transition and so I have a uterus and ovaries, I still need a pap smear, but I present as masculine or as male, I would not be welcome in that space. People would look at me funny, to say the least, if I walked in by myself to that particular clinic where they expect only patients who present as female and they'd sure as heck look at me funny if I walked into that bathroom, right? 
So transgender primary care, care clinics that acknowledge a diversity of gender expression need to be a thing, and they are a thing here at Ohio State. Um, and there are more, there's not, honestly, I've tried, I've looked. There's, there are places that are doing it better than we are here at Ohio State. Um, University of California, San Francisco has a pretty impressive website and all the things that they offer. Cleveland Clinic appears to have more than we do here at Ohio State. Um, I believe there are folks here at OSU working to expand the services and care that are offered here. Um, but just like with nutrition assessment as part of transgender care, there's a long way to go. There's a long way to go in terms of providing the best possible care. With this presentation, more so than any other, I have included a bunch of references at the end. Um, highly recommend reading through all of these. There's lots of things here. Um, Linsenmeyer, you'll see, pops up. Linsenmeyer, Linsenmeyer, Linsenmeyer. It's everywhere. When we get to maternal and infant nutrition, which we push back um, a couple weeks, we will talk about chest feeding. So there's breastfeeding and there's chest feeding. So that's another thing to discuss. There are resources for, um, you know, today's Dietitian Magazine has a recent publication, the Evidence Analysis Library, this links to that scoping review, um, trans student educational resources, healthcare for transgender and diverse individuals, and then here are links to both the Mayo Clinic and the University of California, San Francisco, because they have really great descriptions. In fact, many of the links that I have there describing those surgeries are linking to Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, or UCSF, because they're the ones that have really good descriptions online of what those things involve. As ever, we have an exit ticket, and as ever, the exit ticket is anonymous. So any questions you have, I cannot guarantee that I have the answers, but I can guarantee I will help you find them. So that's it. That's what we got for today. Yes? What is the percentage? 29% 29. 29 of, of transgender individuals have been denied health care because of their gender identity. Okay. It is very much a problem, right? And I, I, I alluded to that when I said discrimination in a healthcare setting, but I did not, did not stress the scope of the problem, right? So if a third of transgender patients are denied health care, right? And that means any type of health care, right? A primary care visit, preventative care, just a basic well check, right? Much less the more involved care for chronic conditions and those types of things, or gender affirming care for that matter, right? So yes, it's a huge problem. 2016, I think, was it the NIH or the CDC? I, I don't know, designated transgender population as a group at high risk of um, health disparities due to discrimination. So yes, it's, it's an issue, it's a big issue. And this is the first year I've done a lecture on transgender assessment. So even I need to do a lot better, right? But we got to start somewhere. What else? All right. Thanks for being here today.